0: Good morning church, you made it through the elements, I hope you're not sleepy, it's because it's dark outside, Uh, we're going to get into God's word today and Luke chapter 10, if you got your Bibles you can turn there and uh, Justin was just mentioning a family in our church that lost a a seven year old and so that is a grief I'm sure that many of you wouldn't even want to imagine and so we're going to pray for them, pray for the Duckworth family and uh, we're going to pray for our time as we open up the scriptures too, so let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you're present you're present in living rooms that are tuning in you're present in this room as we open up your scriptures that you are ever present god i pray that you'd make your presence known and i pray for the duckworth family right now god i pray that you would give them a peace that surpasses all understanding i pray that you'd pour your grace and your love into them on them over them protect them sing over them god just show them your love through us god i pray our church would love on them well I pray for us as we open up your scriptures that you would pour your love into our hearts, like you talked about in Romans chapter 5, that we would know the love that surpasses all understanding, the height, the depth, the length, the width of that love, and that it would ooze out of us into our community. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Were you aware that this week is Super Bowl week? It doesn't mean that we're at the Super Bowl this Sunday. It's next Sunday, a week from now. And if your team's not in it, maybe you weren't that aware. I didn't get much response. I don't see many jerseys out there uh, today. But the Kansas City Chiefs are going to be playing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. One fan here today. All the Kansas City people are watching at home. Uh, thank you so much for that. And so that shows your interest level, obviously, in the Super Bowl as we're coming into this. But I think the Super Bowl is, is an interesting cultural phenomenon. It's irrelevant to my life. I'm a Detroit Lions fan. They're one of only four teams that have never made the big game. We did go 0-16 one year, we got that going for us, and we just traded away one of the best players we've ever had, and so it's, it's you know, we're just kind of losers, And that's so what we do. But I still watch the game. In fact, so do many of you. Statistically, over the last 10 years, the Super Bowl has about 100 million viewers. That is why every year the, the advertisers will pay over $5 million for a 30-second spot to give their product some airtime in front of you. And it's really interesting to me as I think about what will happen between this Sunday and next Sunday leading up to the Super Bowl. Just try and think about that for a moment. There's these coaching staffs of each team, whether it's Tampa Bay or whether it's Kansas City, they're gonna spend about a hundred hours studying their own playbook, trying to study the plays of the other team. They're gonna be researching this stuff. They're gonna have such a plan. There's only 168 hours in the week. They're gonna spend about a hundred hours preparing for this game. They're going to have such a plan, if you're a Green Bay Packers fan, you'll appreciate or resent me for this comment, they're going to know if it's fourth and goal at the end of the game, and they're down by eight, they're not kicking a field goal. They're going to know not only that they are going to run a play, they're going to know what play they're going to run in that moment. The exact play that they will run in that given scenario, they'll be so prepared. But there's not just the coaches, there's the players. The players are gonna spend time watching film of the other team to try and see what their weaknesses are. Uh, They're gonna go to meetings where the coach is gonna tell them about the playbook, tell them the plays they're gonna run, show them their weaknesses. They're gonna talk about this, analyze this, interview with other people, talk about what they're gonna do, rehearse their plays. Think about that just for the, that's just players and coaches. What about the rest of us? Have you ever thought about the fact of what the analysts do for their job? The analysts actually get paid money and they get paid really good money. In normal people terms, they get paid really good money to critique how someone else does their job. Their job is to critique someone else and how they do These guys haven't played football, in, some of them, in 30 years. They couldn't run a four minute and five second 40 yard dash. One does a 4.5 40 yard dash. Like these guys are up there, they're critiquing how somebody else is doing something Whether they can jump high enough to do this thing, how this guy shouldn't be out there, how that guy should have retired two years ago, this is an up and comer. Their job is to critique somebody else's job and they're gonna do that all week and they're gonna interview people, do that. And then there's the rest of us 100 million or so people they're gonna watch the game why why are we gonna watch the game we don't care about the teams many of us we're gonna watch many of us to be entertained some of us are intentionally going to watch because we want to see the halftime show and all the christians are going to be offended let me i don't even know who's going to do it how it's going to go this year you're going to be offended if you don't want to be offended don't watch that and all the non-christians will be like that was the most amazing artistic thing ever and they are going to fight with each other on facebook i'm going to get mad at both of you i shouldn't be on facebook that's kind of what's going to happen with that all right but some of you are going to watch this because of the commercials that's interesting to me too because many of you pay money to not watch commercials all year. So you can fast forward through them, skip them, but then you'll be at a Super Bowl party, you're not paying attention to the game, they are like, shh, commercial's on. Everybody wants to see what's happening in the commercial. And then there's people that are going to go to Super Bowl parties and they don't care about the game, they don't care about the commercials, they're just showing them because their friends are there. And then there's people that are going to play in the game. And what's interesting me is there's so few people that actually play in the game. You think about the Super Bowl, there's spectators, prognosticators, and very few players. Now, think about the church and how much the church is like the Super Bowl. You've got people who think it's their spiritual gift to critique what's going on in the church. We love you. I hope Jesus changes you. It's great that you're here. But there are people that genuinely think, like, I've got to tell the pastor all the things he didn't say in the sermon, and all the things he should have said, and all the things he said that were wrong, and it's an email on Monday, it's great, it's a great way to start my week, I love it. And then there's other people that's like, this program, or that program, go to this church, or that church, and like, all that stuff, that's their spiritual gift, they believe, and so they use that as a job. And then, you've got people that come to church, they want to be entertained, like, I don't really care about content, I know it's not you, but it's like people that, that, they're not really worried about encountering Jesus, they want to know, was it, did I like the beat of the music, was the pastor engaging enough? I hope like, oh, we pay attention at church. Like, that's, the, that's the hope. That's what they're wanting out of the whole thing. And then there's, there's other folks that will come. They love to study the playbook. So they'll get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, study the playbook, and go with their friends, talk about the playbook. There's so few people that get in and make a play. That's the bad part. There's so few players. As I was thinking about this sermon series that we're doing called Love Is, we're talking about what love is like. And today's message is titled, Love is Faith in Action. Love requires that we make a play. Love requires that we get in the game. If you got your Bible, we're going to be at Luke chapter 10 today. Uh, famous story. Uh, we've really slaughtered it as a culture, and so hopefully we can uh, look at it in the context the Bible has here. Uh, if you're new uh, to our church, or maybe you haven't been a part of this series, let me just bring you up to speed of what's happening in this series. Really, as we're talking about love is, we followed the flow of the Bible, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 that we only love God because he first loved us. And so the first message in the series, we talked about how, how God loves us and what his love for us is like. It's an, a pursuing love that he came after us. That so while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He's coming to seek and save the lost. He's coming after you. And I don't know where you're at, but he's coming after you. It's an undeserved love. We didn't earn it. It's an unlimited love. It's a personal love. It's a costly love. He died on the cross for you. And he pours that love into our hearts regularly now, Romans chapter 5, verse 5. He didn't just do it once at the cross. He's pouring his love into our hearts, hopefully some of you in this very moment. And let me talk about our love for him, that he demands and he deserves an all-encompassing love. And we saw in that sermon that our view of God determines our love for God. Our view of God, the way we look at him, many of us have false views of him, determines our love for God. And that's why some of us are apathetic, because of our false view of who God is. And then, and we're at a spot now, last week and this week, and the rest of this series, where we're talking about what does that look like then with other people in real relationships? And so we start with the vertical, a relationship with God, because that's where the Bible starts. But then do you know what the Bible says also in 1 John chapter 4? If you claim to love God, but you don't love other people, you're a liar. And so Jesus gets real practical in relationships here. In Luke chapter 10, this is a different encounter than the other lawyer that asked Jesus a question. Look what he says. And behold, look, pay attention, a lawyer, not the kind that argues in court, somebody who studies the law or the Bible stood up to him stood up so the other people were probably sitting down and this guy stood up to put himself in a place of authority to put him talking about Jesus to the test saying teacher talking to Jesus what shall I do to inherit eternal life Jesus he said to him what is written in the law how do you read it go read the Bible and he answered you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself and he, Jesus, said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to, to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the guy a story. It's a famous story. Uh, you've probably heard uh, different versions of it. It's even in secular newspapers sometimes. It says, Jesus replied, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine to be first century first aid. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, that's two days wages, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more, to blank check, whatever more you spend, I'll repay when I come back. Then Jesus speaking says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, and he's so racist he can't even say Samaritan. He said, the one who showed him mercy, Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Here you've got this lawyer who asks an incredibly personal question. Like think about this. He doesn't say, hey, how does somebody become a Christian? How does somebody get eternal life? How does somebody get into heaven? He says, how do I, somebody who studies the Bible all the time, how do I inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? Jesus says, what do you read? How do you read the Bible? I love when Jesus answers people's questions with a question. It shows how in control he is. He doesn't feel like he's got to prove like, is my answer satisfactory to you, guy who studies the Bible all the time? He's Jesus. He's like, what do you, I wrote the Bible. What do you think the Bible says? He answers and then paraphrase. Jesus goes, ding, 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 you got it. That's not how most of us would answer that question. If you've ever been trained in evangelism to share your story, the four spiritual laws, the Romans road, you're not saying what Jesus says here. I'm going with Jesus. Jesus says, okay, go do that. Go do that all the time it's actually in the present tense that that command and what that means is continuously it's always the present tense so you go and love your neighbor as yourself now and always perfectly and the guy wants to justify himself he goes what do i do what do i do and then jesus tells the story and did you see at the end he takes this question from a passive who is my neighbor to an active you go be a neighbor go and do likewise and what Jesus shows us here is that this, if you want to know what love is, love is, is in action. Love is faith in action. And in light of it being Super Bowl week, what I'd like for us to do is we walk back through this passage and see the truths that God has for us in this passage, is give you an outline that really has two plays, like a coach would do. One's an offensive play, one's a defensive play. We'll start with the defensive play, because defense sets up offense, right? Those of you like that, yeah, yeah it sounds like good. It's a philosophy. And so here it is. The defensive play is something we need to stop doing. The offensive play is something we need to begin doing or continue to do. The defensive play is this. We need to stop following a lying heart. Stop following a lying heart. Have you ever heard this saying before? Uh, somebody said, well, just follow your heart. That's incredibly dangerous counsel. Because the Bible tells us that the heart is deceptive and wicked, deceitful above everything else. Think about all the deceptive things in the world. It's Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. If you think I'm just making it up, we can pop the verse up on the screen so you can see it there. Our hearts are deceptive, and even people who don't believe the Bible know this is true. I mean, we give some nonsense advice to people nowadays, don't we? Like, you ever hear somebody, like, say something on Facebook, like, just be true to yourself? Like, that's about, what does that even mean? Follow your heart? No, don't do that, don't do that. You're going to get yourself in trouble. (laughs) Because the heart's deceptive. I was reading uh, an article this week, a secular psychology article, that was talking about how we know that we lie to ourselves and why we do it. This article, which had nothing to do with the Bible, said that we lie to ourselves because it helps us believe the lies we're telling to everybody else about ourselves. And they cited some scientific studies about how people actually view themselves and we all view ourselves better than what's actually true and we know it. They were telling that one study was about whether you think you're a good driver or not. And I don't want to embarrass anybody but I wouldn't know, you know, I'd ask like how many of you here think you're an above average driver? It'd be embarrassing because almost everybody would raise their hand according to the study. 90% 90% they got a guy has a hand in the I'm a pastor I'm a pastor I see these hands okay I see you raise your hand online the study said think about this for a second 90% of people believe they're an above average driver that's not possible y'all are not interacting with me at all today <laughs> you can't even do that and so as I read it I thought to myself have you ever been on a road trip and there's that guy that's driving in the left lane the left lane's a passing lane that's a service announcement for everybody here and he's driving in the left lane and there's like 30 cars behind him, like the dump truck is trying to pass him, go around him in the right lane and I think, I'm thinking to myself, what is that guy doing in his car? I joke with my wife sometimes, I go, it's so fun to drive in the left lane, like it's just unaware of anything that's going on around you and that guy checked, I'm an above average driver. No, you're not, you liar. (laughs) And if it's you, just let the Holy Spirit do its work right now, all right? Just (laughs) let that change our community, it'll be amazing. But we know that we lie. We know that we lie to ourselves. We know that we lie about, about how we love people. Like just thinking about this passage. Most of us come here and be like, I love my neighbor. Yeah, I love people. I don't hate people. And so kind of go through the thing. Think about this. Those of you who are married, think about this. Didn't you say grandiose things to the person you're married to before you married them? I'm going to love you. I'll die for you. I'll do anything for you. Then you think about what, what actually happens. Like in the relationship, right? Somebody sent me a list of tweets the other day about marriage is really like. I'll share just one of them with you. Uh, some, some of you have been working from home lately. Can identify with this. This guy says, my wife and I are both working from home. She microwave fish. Time to alert HR. <laughs> like when you actually live with each other, then it's like, I would die for you. But would you stop eating that nonsense? Like you just, it's difficult to actually live this out. What Jesus is doing with the guy in this passage, is going, you know, the... this guy shows us it's possible to know and believe the Bible and not live the Bible. He's saying, you know the law. Go live it out. And what he's doing is he's laying his life down next to the law and going, they don't line up, do that. Because he gives him a command that on his own, he could never keep. That's why, that's Jesus, what he's doing in his evangelism there. When he points him to the law, it's not because anybody was ever saved by the law. It's because the guy should respond and go, I can't do that on my own. But, verse 29, if you've got your Bibles, you can look at them, says, seeking to justify himself, that means he's trying to make himself look like everything is right. Seeking to justify himself, says, "Well, who's my neighbor?" And what you need to understand with that is that Jews had created a system where the neighbor was anybody that was like them. It was fellow Jews, and if you actually really start digging into this, it was Jews within certain there were sects and different groups. And so, like, there was a group called the Essenes, and and what they would do is it was everybody that was as devoted as us. So it's like we got a corner on the truth. Anybody doesn't believe that? We're not responsible for We just got to love the people. We just got to love the people at our church. We just got to love the people that think like us. We got to love the people that do things like us. Just gotta, let me tell you something. If you create a system that limits the people that you're, you're supposed to love, that's not God's system. He wants to blow up your system. And so I started looking at what is Jesus calling to here in this passage versus what is this guy experiencing? And I lay my life down next to it because before I can apply to, the, to you, I got to apply it to myself. And I think, I think my Christianity looks more like the guy that's being taught here than it does like Jesus and what he's calling to. I don't know what your experience has been like here in RDU and I don't know where all the places you're watching from today online, but in Raleigh-Durham, we live in the suburbs. I think sometimes we're tempted to follow a suburban Jesus. I don't mean he drives a suburban. I mean, he's like suburbia Jesus. Somebody said to me after the service, like, you could, call, could have called a minivan Jesus in the first service. I was like, okay, mini. he drives a minivan. He listens to K-Love, cruises through Chick-fil-A on his way to soccer practice. And his goal in your life is to keep you from being defiled by the world. And he wants to keep you safe and comfortable and in a bubble. And so what, he was probably formed and fashioned by the way, because you think about the golden calf in Exodus, they formed and fashioned their own God. This Jesus, who's not the Jesus of the Bible, uh, was formed and fashioned in the furnace of fear. It's because we're afraid of the world. And so what we do as Christians, we create a subculture and we exist here in North Raleigh, certainly within the church world. And we create, we even have our own apparel, okay? t shirts and say two nails and two hands and four givens got math on it. it's awesome for our PhDs that are in the community here and we got songs and we got movies and we got you know we got our own breath mints they're called testaments have you seen them that's a real thing I'm not making that up like we create all this stuff that we insulate ourselves from from people that aren't like us and it's very possible to go to church here in North Raleigh and have your friends in North Rock and live in this neighborhood and this whatever and all the people you come into contact with believe like you, think like you, look a lot like you, they might even dress like you. And if we can create that, that's scary. Because we become like, who's my, yeah, my neighbor. I love my neighbor. They're just like me. Jesus has blown the paradigm of that out of the water here. And for some of us, we're like, well, no, I, I put a sponsor a kid that lives far away and he's poor and I put a picture of him up on my fridge so my friends can see how great I am, I mean, so I can pray for him. I don't know your motives. But do you ever get outside of that bubble? Because Jesus blows that bubble up with this story. But you know what Jesus is doing for this guy? He's identifying as lying. If you're justifying yourself, then you're lying to yourself. Don't follow a lying heart. Stop following a lying heart. What Jesus is doing here, it's like what happened when uh, one of my daughters I was talking to the other day, we were in her room and she wanted me to hang something up on the wall uh, she's in seventh grade and so my ninth grade daughter is my oldest daughter she comes in and we're in her room we're trying to get the level and get things all the right way and i was like i think we need the ladder and just so you know my seventh grade daughter she keeps the cleanest room of all cleaner than my room like cleaner than anybody in our house like i walk up it's like the immaculate room i'll open the door and be like ah oh, great in there hey you guys pick the towels up off the floor they're gonna stink in a couple days like start yelling at everybody else but her room's good like i don't even have to worry about it until I went to hang something up on her wall. And that meant I had to move her bed. And so when we moved her bed, all of a sudden I realized years worth of clean has been stuffed underneath the bed. And so there's clothes, I haven't been able to find these clothes, like that's where they were, they were stuffed under the bed. There's paper, you know, wadded up, homework that was under there. There was a cup there that my ninth grade daughter said to, remember she's in seventh grade two years ago, said, that's from the fifth grade fun run. That's bad news. What Jesus is doing here with this guy when he tells him the story is he's pulling back the layers. Let's see what's really going on in your heart. He says this to some other religious guys. When he's doing the same thing, he's being more confrontational in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe. What's the problem with that, Jesus? The problem is you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. And then a couple verses later, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind, you're misled Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside may also be clean. And see, what we oftentimes do is we create these religious systems That we think if we get people to modify their behavior and act this way and vote this way and think this way and do these things and don't do these naughty things, that somehow that's going to get to their heart. And my fear for you as a pastor of church in this city is that we're going to have a bunch of people that stand before God one day and they say, depart from me, I never knew you. We're going to say, but I did, I drove a minivan. I went to Chick-fil-A. I ate Christian chicken. But the way Jesus works is he starts in the heart. He cleans the inside and that transforms the outside. What we try to do is get everybody to conform to a certain way of life and then hope that their heart catches up with the process. That's a religious system. And then Jesus tells this story here. I think it's a really interesting observation of this passage is that these religious guys are traveling on this road doing the religious system. They never did it. If this road so dangerous, why don't they try to transform this community? It's a lot easier to keep a religious system together than it is to transform a community for Christ. Jesus wants to do the transformation from the inside out and that takes us to our second point, the offensive point is that we must be transformed by the loving God. We must be transformed, not by A, by the loving God. You look at this passage, it's all about transformation. He transforms the guy's question from a passive question. Who is my neighbor to go and be a neighbor? He wants to transform the man that he's speaking to and he gives an illustration of a guy who's been transformed. We got a lot of problems with this though. It's hard to even teach you this story because there's so much mess about it in our culture. A lot of us hear this story and we're like, yeah, I know that story. You read a story in the USA Today or New York Times or whatever, that's the Good Samaritan story. It's anybody who like changes somebody's tire on the side of the road. That's not at all what this is talking about. It's not just being a nice person and doing a good deed. In fact, the Bible never calls this person the Good Samaritan, just to be clear. Now, my Bible has a subtitle on it that says The Parable of the Good Samaritan. Here's a couple things I'd like you to ask yourself as we walk back through this story. How do you know this is a parable? A parable is a story that's a made-up story to teach a spiritual truth. Who said this story is made up? I don't think this story is made up. A lot of people smarter than me think this story is made up. Bible commentators, folks like that. But I think if I was the lawyer and Jesus told me this story, I'd go, a Samaritan would never do that. That's not a real story. The story's so ridiculous, it doesn't teach your point. Jesus, I think it's very possible this is a real story. And to call him the good Samaritan That misses the punch of the whole story. Jesus telling the story to a Jew, it would be naturally offensive that it's a Samaritan in this story. It'd be like if I said to you, I want to tell you a story about a righteous pimp. And some of you lean over to the person next to you and go, he talks fast. Did he just say what I think he said? (laughs) The generous thief. The kind terrorist. It's an oxymoron. he's He's not called in the passage a good Samaritan. He's called a Samaritan. And it'd be offensive to hear that. And I think it's probably a real story. It's a real location. It's a real road. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a steep road. Jerusalem is about 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho is about 1,300 feet below sea level. The road's only 17 miles long. It's a windy road, so it's short, and it's steep, and it's rocky, and there's caves, and it was notoriously bloody. In fact, Jerome, one of the church fathers closer to the time when this happened, he said that this was called the bloody way. And so for Jesus to tell a story that starts off with a guy that's bloody on the side of the road, not that unthinkable. In fact, probably happened all the time. And look at how desperate that guy's situation is. If you have your Bible, you go back there and you look at it, and it says that, that he was beaten, stripped naked. He didn't have any clothes on. When I was reading the story, I thought to myself, isn't that kind of extreme, Jesus, to have this guy naked? If you're making up the story, he's naked in the story? Like, that's kind of crazy. Was it just as humiliating, the guy? But the reality is, in the first century, clothes were more valuable than they are to us. So many of us have multiple outfits. Many people then would just have one. And so his clothes are stolen from him. He's bleeding, probably out of his nose, maybe out of his ears. He's half dead. He's so beaten. He's, did you notice he's not crying out for help? He's so close to death. He's not even, somebody help. Ah, like something. No. He's just there. But there's a glimmer of hope. A priest comes by. Here's the funny thing about the priest. He's wearing the verses. That this guy quoted of love your neighbor love god they would wear those verses on their wrist and on their forehead all the time he's walking down the road and so you're like all right it's gonna happen and not only does he do nothing he goes to the other side of the road now listen some bible commentators go well maybe he was tired (laughs) are you kidding the guy's dying well he's been at the temple and he's traveling back home He doesn't want to be unclean. Well, he already was at the temple. That argument doesn't make sense. Like they give all these arguments and maybe your study Bible notes of why why maybe this would happen. That defeats the point of what Jesus is saying. There's no excuse. And the guy didn't, not only did he do nothing, he went out of his way not to be bothered by this guy. He crosses the other side of the road. Who would do that? No one would do that. Really? We have too high of a view of people and probably of ourselves. Because you can find story after story of people doing this very thing modern day. There's one story I read that was so appalling to me. I remember several years ago reading this story. It was about a guy. His name is Hugo Yeltex. If you want to look up his name, uh, you'll find him. And he was a guy who lived in New York City. He saw a woman being assaulted by a guy with a knife. He heard, Multiple people heard the screaming. But he's called, in the article that I saw, he's called a Good Samaritan. Because he goes to try and intervene. But you know what happens? He gets stabbed and then the guy who was robbing this woman runs off and the woman who's being robbed, she runs off and Hugo's left there laying on the ground bleeding and no one knew this was caught on surveillance camera. So there's actually the videos actually online of of what happened and for an hour and 20 minutes he laid there and do you know how many people went by him? Over two dozen, 25 people walked past him. Most of them did nothing. One guy stopped and took a picture of him with a cell phone one guy grabbed him and shook him, but when he saw the blood, I'm out, i one going to mess with that. No one even called the police. The fire department showed up an hour and 20 minutes later and he was dead. Oh, I would never do that. It's appalling to us, right? Like, I think, well, I would help a guy on the side. Of, I think that about myself. I don't know if I would until the scenario happens, but I think that about myself. But then I think to myself, but how many people are there that need the care that's being talked about in this passage? They're wounded, they're hurting. Maybe they're not physically dying on the side of the road and I keep myself in my religious bubble and I might post something about it, but do something about it? Unborn children? We're pro-life, you know, God's pro-life, so we're pro-life and, but, and we'll vote once every four years on that thing, but how many moms have you helped that were thinking about having an abortion, not having an abortion? Well, I don't know any. Well, there's millions every year. So we need to open our eyes, if not. And if you want help, we actually have a ministry we partner with, Gateway Ministry. You want to meet a mom? Thinking about doing that? They got multiple that come through their door every day. But we can go out of our way to not be uncomfortable about those things. Or we can talk about orphans. There's hundreds of millions of orphans in the, in the world. There's all there's problems. There's lots of problems. You can't fix every problem. There's refugees, there's refugees in our community, just so you know. Like there's, there's an offensiveness to this passage because there's a refugee that, that does the, the good deed here. But we help refugees we help hungry people how about a family in our church that just lost somebody like that's there's there's people everywhere that are hurting but many of us keep ourselves in this comfort zone how's that any different than the priest and then there's another guy that comes he's a Levite you know what he does nothing and then Jesus says but contrast a Samaritan now when we hear that we know how the story goes we're like this is the good guy when they heard that they'd be like a Samaritan Because there's a tension here between Jews and Samaritans that's been building up for 400 years. They've had tension, racial tension. The Jews thought the Samaritans were half-breeds, they were lesser than uh, because of their race, because they had mixed with the Assyrians, and the the Jews thought that their temple was the right place to worship, and and the Samaritans had their own place to worship, and Gerizim. Here's the news headlines of the day if they were watching the news, whichever channel they decided to watch. There were some Jews that had recently traveled through Samaria and been murdered. That's what had happened about the time of the story being told. There were Samaritans who had come into the Jewish temple and defiled it by bringing human bones in there, and so Samaritans were bad. They were considered like a terrorist. And so, if I asked you, like, who do you, who do you hate? I say, I don't know. I'm gonna say I hate anybody. Who do you have a hard time loving? That'd be who it is. And you know the expectation when they, when Jesus, they don't they haven't heard this story before. So Jesus says, but a Samaritan came down the road, and they expect the Samaritan to go over to the dead body. Bah, Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Don't watch that show, anyway. So finish him off well next snap that's what a Samaritan would do but then this guy does what God's done for us felt so compassion and the Bible compassion always leads to action and pursuing love he went to the guy and his own sacrifice he takes his own clothes and wraps up his wounds that's very personal puts him on his animal so now he has to walk and they go to an inn and we don't know what the cost is but he gives two denarii, that would be enough for the guy to stay in an inn depending on how nice the inn is, somewhere between three weeks and two months. Was it Umstead or was it Motel 6? We don't know but it was an inn. That guy stayed the night there as well and at the end he gives an unlimited love he says whatever it costs to take care of this guy I got it. When I come back I got it. Now if you had hated Samaritans your whole life if that person was maybe somebody who wronged you did something to you wronged you in a business deal you're just angry with like in your life and that was the person who did this and you saw him then do that you know what you would think to yourself what happened to that guy now we don't even know we don't even know if this is a real story or if it's a made up story but if it's a real story like I think to myself there was a time when there was a revival in Samaria in Jesus ministry it's in John chapter 4 Remember John chapter 4? There's a woman at the well. She's got a reputation. She's the kind of person that nobody's wanting to deal with, except for some guys. And Jesus sits at the well and he says, can I have a drink? And she says, why do you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? She knows that he should naturally think she's lesser than. Oh, and let's not be naive. Samaritans hated Jews too. And then Jesus, in a conversation with her, ends up saying, the guy you're shacking up with now, he's not your husband. The other guys that you have left, I know about them too. And then reveals himself as the savior of the world. And she runs back to the village and says to the village, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. I'm going to promise you there's five dudes in that town that are going, who? Why? And then we know that revival broke out and a bunch of people got saved in John chapter 4 in Samaria. What if one of the guys is this guy? One of the guys that was commit adultery with this woman He's living for himself but now you see him doing this do you remember what the question was because we miss that a lot of times in this passage especially if you read in the USA today or things like that the question was how do I inherit eternal life the question wasn't tell me a good deed I should do whose tire should I change now that's what we make it that's not what Jesus was teaching Jesus was teaching this guy who has eternal life who's my neighbor Well, let me give you an example of two guys who don't demonstrate eternal life. They know the Bible. They don't put it into action. In fact, they're wearing the Bible, and they go out of their way not to obey the Bible because they've created a system that makes them comfortable with their religion. But there's this guy. It appears his life has been transformed. Some humbling takeaways as we apply this passage. I think there's at least four. The first one is this. This love in action is a humbling love. This love and action is a humbling love. Because many of us, when we read this story, especially before today, probably think we're the Samaritan. Let me tell you something. You're not the Samaritan in this story. If anybody's a Samaritan in this story, it's Jesus. He's the outcast. In fact, you read in John chapter 8 that when the religious leaders wanted to curse Jesus out, call him a swear word, they said, aren't you a Samaritan and demon-possessed? That was a slanderous way to use race to then denigrate Jesus. He says, aren't you a Samaritan? And equal to. Demon possessed. Jesus is the outcast who loves his enemy and then goes and seeks out those who don't deserve it, aren't even asking for it, to demonstrate love to them, like the Samaritan does in the passage. While we were his enemies, Christ came and Christ died for us. If anybody's a Samaritan, it's Jesus. That means if we're anybody, we're the guy on the side of the road, half dead. The problem is the Bible says we're not half dead, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But he came for us. That's humbling. Also, this is a radical love. This faith in action is radical because did you see here, it says if you're going to love your neighbor, you love your neighbor as you love yourself. A lot of times we think that it just means like, hey, you see a panhandler on the side of the road, and give him two bucks. But... Is that how we love ourselves? Because we love ourselves. Like we don't have time to get it all, it's not like a talk on self-esteem and not self-esteem. and all. We do that in America with our super narcissistic culture where everything's about us. I need to learn to love myself better before I can love other people. Like that's not at all what the Bible is talking about here. It just assumes you love yourself and here's how we know. Those of you who are married, do you ever fight over the thermostat? Somebody wants it hot, somebody wants it go. You know why you do that? Because you want it your way. Some of you ever been sick? Ever, some of you here I see you, have you ever had a man cold? It's awful terrible. I know some of you have only been able to give birth and you wouldn't understand the pain of a man cold. Don't email me. I was kidding. Just kidding, ladies. Do not. But you want every need met. And so that's why when you itch, you scratch. That's why you care about the temperature of the room. That's why when you get hungry, you go to the refrigerator. You, you do love yourself. Who else do you love like that? I'm going to guess nobody. Or a very small list that you've made of people. But the neighbor in this passage is everybody, all the time. That's why the command is, do this, present tense, continuously, perfectly. The only person who does that is Jesus. And so that means that we need Jesus because this is an impossible love. We can't possibly do this on our own. Doesn't mean we can't do it. We can't possibly do it on our own. We need the Holy Spirit. We need God to do this work in us. But here's the good news. What God commands, God empowers. When God commands us to do something, he always empowers us to do that very thing. This is an impossible command. There's no way you can always love your neighbor as yourself all the time, and the needs are so overwhelming, but he puts people in your path. Those are the people. And so you think about it throughout the Bible. What about when, when Jesus fed the 5,000? You ever read the details of that story? We we're talk about Jesus fed the 5,000. No, the disciples fed the 5,000, actually. Because Jesus, he said, he wasn't willing to let these people have false teaching, so he gave them good teaching. And then it says he felt compassion on them, and he was unwilling to let them, so compassion always leads to action, he was unwilling to let them go away hungry. And so he says to his disciples, feed them. And they say, we can't, and they're such dorks. One of them, Philip, actually says, well, (laughs) it would cost this much money. And he starts talking through like the calculations of how much money it would take to feed these people. And then Jesus says, have them sit down. And then, through the disciples, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And there's more left over. Because what God commands, God empowers. You think about Lazarus when he's in the tomb. And Jesus says, come out. What's Lazarus? Goes, I'm dead! <laughs> like, I can't. It's not possible. But God commanded him to do it. So God empowers him to do it. Or, or you think about when Peter's standing on the edge of the boat and Jesus commands him to get out of the boat. Come, uh, we don't need to get into the details, but I weigh more than water does, Jesus. No. If I command you to do something, I'm going to empower you to do that thing. And so he's commanding us to love people we would not naturally love. There's people you naturally love. He's commanding us to love even people we don't naturally love. I'm reading a book right now by a guy named Bob Goff. It's called Everybody Always, and it's the point of this passage. He says this, simply put, we can stop waiting for a plan and just go love everybody. There's no school to learn how to love your neighbor, just the house next door. And then he says, it's not, this, "I don't to agree with this totally, but he says no one expects us to love them flawlessly, but we can love them fearlessly, furiously, and unreasonably." Well, Jesus does say we're supposed to love them, per, but he knows we're not going to do it. And Jesus is gracious. You, know, you didn't do it yesterday; you' empower you to do it today. Who, who, who? Do you know what I love about this story more than anything else? Is it doesn't have an ending. And that leads me to this takeaway: is that we have to own our impact. You got to take this kind of love that we put into action. We have got to take ownership of this. You've got to own your impact because the story ends and notice he says you go be that kind of neighbor and we don't know what the guy does what happens to this lawyer does he fall down on his knees at that moment and go Jesus I can't do this I need you to do this will you do a work in my heart transform me or does he go I'm going to go try let's see I'm going to try and love somebody where's that, where's that guy is there any more half dead people out here Like we don't know do you know why because you're the end of the story it's you and me Jesus teaching us He's showing us here. This is what it looks like. You want to look up? You look out, You want to know what it looks like to live out the abundant life. You want to know what it looks like to live out eternal life. You know what it looks like to put love in action? It's this. Is this. So then you have a choice. You can critique this message. I'm sure it wasn't perfect. There's probably an email you can send me. You can go, I like this part, or you lost me at this part. Entertaining, not entertaining. You can go study it more. We didn't talk about everything here. We didn't really dive into how dangerous it was for a Samaritan to even be on this road. We didn't talk about many of the things that are in this passage. Or you can go make a play go love the person that God puts in front of you. You say, oh, I'm in such a bubble. We've got, go to our next steps table. Put it in the comments. Connect me with a strategic partner. We can show you people, thousands of people in our city. They're hurting. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you, you give us your word. Thank you that you don't leave us to try and figure this stuff out on our own. You've given us your word. You've given us each other. You've given us resources, time, and money, and giftings and other people and ministries and platforms and father you've done so much. God I pray that we would step in and and not be people that just talk about your word but we would do it, we would live it out. Would you put in front of every person that hears these words in this very moment somebody this week that needs to see and hear about the love of your son Jesus Christ. Would you make it so obvious to us that in order to not love them we would have to be denying that we even know you to turn our backs on them. God help us to be a church that loves people well. Help us be a place where the community might say, well, I don't, I, don't know what they, I don't like what they believe, I don't believe these things, but they see you through us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.